Hello and welcome to episode 377 of So You Want to Be a Writer. My name's Valerie Koo and I'm your co-host and I'm CEO of the Australian Writers' Centre, where you'll find courses, writing courses, and a wonderfully supportive writing community. My partner in crime, Alison Tate, also known as A.L. Tate, is not here at the moment because she's having a summer break, but she will be back soon. I'm flying solo just for a few episodes. Uh, Alison, of course, is the author of The Firestar, a Maven and Reeve mystery. I'd like to give a big shout out to Sumi Mahendran, who kindly left us a review of the podcast. It's short and sweet. And Sumi says, I absolutely love the podcast and never miss an episode. And I also love the newsletter. Thank you, Sumi. Sumi actually graduated from our course, Creative Writing Stage 1, last year. And she adds that the course gave her the inspiration and encouragement to keep writing. And that's so lovely to hear. So thank you so much, Sumi, and good luck with your writing. Can't wait to see more of it. If you'd like to add your own review, we'd love to hear from you. It really helps us in the rankings and it means that other writers just like you can find us and learn all about the wonderful world of writing and publishing. So as I mentioned, I'm alone for this episode. Well, not totally alone. Because my kitty cat, Rexy, is here with me, but he's not very chatty today, so you might not be hearing from him this time. It feels like the year has, you know, kind of like properly started with everything returning to normal after the holiday period uh, or what passes for normal these days. I'm out of lockdown. My area was in lockdown. Um, and at the Writer's Centre, we uh, are back into the swing of things with lots of students heading back into online classrooms because um, uh, of the current situation in the world, but lots of great interactivity and communities forming and writing groups as well. So loving to see everyone uh, get back into the swing of things. With that in mind, though, this week's writing tip is all about tips for sharing your writing for the first time. So, yeah, maybe you've made a New Year's resolution to join a writing group or you've signed up for a writing course, which is very exciting. But now, of course, in many cases, unless you're doing a self-paced course, you actually have to share your writing. And in some cases, even with the self-paced course, you may need to share your writing with your tutor because you'll have an assignment or something like that. So there's a post on the Australian Writers Centre blog and it is six tips for sharing your writing for the first time. You can obviously head, o- head on over to the blog, which is at writercentre.com.au slash blog if you want to check it out, but we'll put the link in the show notes. Now, as it says in this post, we've taught a lot of students. So we know that sharing your work can scare many people at first. But the thing is, when you get feedback from a supportive community of writers, uh, it's one of the most valuable things that you can do with your writing because it really throws up um, some issues that you might not have th- might not have thought of, but it also gives you validation for the bits that are working really well. Uh, but of course, if you do that, that means that you need to find other writers. You know, you need to find your tribe because there's no point kind of just sharing your writing to. Joe Bloggs and all and sundry people who aren't necessarily interested in writing or what you want to achieve, right? So I strongly recommend that you find the right group of people to share your writing with. Because also, as supportive as your friends and family and your mum are, they may not have the skills or that 
intuition or that, that um, you know, propensity to tell you why your characters aren't working or to help fix your dialogue or, you know, especially if they're not readers as well. So it's really important to share your writing with people who want to help you and who are supportive, who understand writing at least to a certain level and can understand what you're going through as a writer. Um, Another good tip to remember is that everyone in your writing group may be as nervous as you are. And in fact, even your your favorite best-selling author felt nervous at one point and, you know, probably still does depending on who they share it with. I think though, I want to add though, if you've had a bad experience at workshopping at some point or getting feedback on your work in the past, don't just dismiss it and say, oh, tried that, not for me. It can be hard. But you do need to dust yourself off and just try again. Maybe you just didn't have find the right people, didn't gel with the right people the first time. So that's why the first tip is so important. You just have to find the right people. Yeah. And that is vital to make sure. And it, it's a bit like dating, isn't it? You need to have a few goes before you get the right fit. So to read the rest of the tips and lots of other great articles on our blog, um, check it out, writercenter.com.au slash blog. Now, I've got no owl to ask this to. So, listeners, are you ready for the word of the week? It is, it's just a little bit different this week, this this word of the week. The word is facetious, F-A-C-E-T-I-O-U-S. Now, I know it's a common word and you've probably already heard of it and you probably already use it. So that's why I'm saying it's a little bit different. It's not as unusual as some of the words of the week that I, um, that I share with you. Um, in case you haven't heard of it though, according to the Macquarie Dictionary, it's an adjective which means intending or trying to be amusing. So you could say he kept interrupting the proceedings with his facetious remarks But the reason I've included it, (laughs) um, what I love about the word, is that it contains all of the vowels, A-E-I-O-U. Not only does it contain all of the vowels, it contains them in order, A-E-I-O-U. Cool, huh? (laughs) Okay, maybe only I think it's cool. And that was the word of the week. This podcast is brought to you by the Australian Writers' Centre and our popular course, Creative Writing Stage 1. This course is the perfect way to unlock your creativity and explore the world of writing. You'll learn how to create memorable characters, believable dialogue and captivating plots, all in a supportive environment in this five-week online course with your very own tutor giving you personal feedback each week. Kanina May has done several courses at the Australian Writers' Centre and her women's fiction novel, The One, was published by HarperCollins. Here's what she says. My name's Kanina May and I'm an author. I've done several courses for the Australian Writers' Centre over the years and they've definitely made me become a published author. Before I started doing courses, I was working in television production. I loved this and have always loved story. The creative writing course really set me on the right path for getting the one where it needed to be. I had a few scenes that I thought were the start of the book, but after doing that course, I realised that that happened much later in the story and I needed to come back and start way beforehand. So it kind of put me in the right place for the story. Um, Additionally to that, I think it gave me just the motivation to keep going. I came away feeling really inspired and I knew that I wanted to complete it. I wanted to get my women's fiction book on the shelves. 
I'd been going to quite a few festivals where so many authors were saying how important it was to create an author platform. So I decided to take the plunge and enrolled in the Build Your Author Platform course. It's about creating yourself an online presence and being able to connect with other writers, other authors, whether it's fans or people that have written books. I had had an online presence for about two years before I got my book deal. So I had, had, I had made connections and I felt that when I did get the publishing deal, I already had a lot of authors that knew of me and were really genuinely happy that I had broken through and gotten that first deal. Through the course at the Australian Writers' Centre, I discovered a great writing community. I came away with the motivation and inspiration to keep on going. I definitely recommend the Australian Writers' Centre to, for any course. I think it's a brilliant place. I always listen to the podcast. It's always inspiring. I constantly want to do more courses. I think there's always more to learn. There's always places to be inspired. And there's always connections to make. There's friendships. I've got some great friends out of doing courses and meeting them at festivals and reaching out to other authors. Definitely go for it. If you'd like to find out more, go to writerscentre.com.au slash creativewriting. Now, our competition this week, this is cool. We have three copies of The Werewolves Who Weren't by T.C. Shelley. It's a children's book, um, the magical follow-up to The Monster Who Wasn't. The second book in this brilliantly rich and strange fantasy series will make us all believe in monsters, be they good, bad, or somewhere in between. Sam might be half monster and half fairy, but since finding a loving family with the Kavanaghs, his daily life has been all human and now he's facing one of the greatest human challenges, starting secondary school. But Sam barely has time to worry about the strange stuff teachers say before he is thrust back into the world of monsters. Sam's school friends are Amira, Hazel and Wilfred and they reveal that they are shifters, noble, twin-souled beings who live half their lives as humans and the other half as dogs. When his new friends are kidnapped one by one, Sam is dragged into an adventure that will force him to confront both halves of his own identity, monster and fairy, if he wants a a chance at saving their lives. Okay, so if you would like to win one of three copies for the young person in your life, go to writerscentre.com.au slash win. Entries close on the 18th of January. That's writerscentre.com.au slash win. And if you're at that URL sometime in the future, don't worry, there'll be some other fabulous competition for you to enter. Our writer in residence this week is the author and writer Keridwen Dovey. Keridwen is a Sydney-based writer of fiction, creative non-fiction and in-depth essays and profiles. She was born in South Africa but grew up between South Africa and Australia and went to Harvard University on scholarship as an undergraduate and did her postgraduate studies in social anthropology at New York University. She is author of the novels Blood Kin and In the Garden of the Fugitives um, and the short story collection Only the Animals, as well as many articles and essays. Fantastic, fantastic feature writer, particularly in the areas of social justice and environmental ethics in outer space. Her latest novel, Life After Truth, has recently been published by Penguin Random House. Have a listen to Keridwen Dovey. Thanks so much for joining us today, Keridwen. Thank you for having me. 
Congratulations on your book. Um, this is not your first rodeo. You're a very experienced writer, novelist, journalist, and uh, <laughs> a number of other things. Um, but Life okay. After Truth. It's scary, though. It's, uh, sc- I feel like it gets more and more scary somehow. What do you mean more and more scary? Just just putting yourself out there. Um, I don't know. Yeah, in a, in a weird way. I think people always assume that it will get easier, but... Um, <laughs> it seems to get harder. Well, for those people who haven't got their hands on a copy of Life After Truth yet, can you tell us what it's about? Sure. Um, so Life After Truth is a set over a long weekend. Um, it's set on the Harvard campus um, and it's a group of old friends and roommates who are all American, um, who have gone back to the campus for their 15-year reunion. And um, while they're there, there's a bit of intrigue and someone dies. Um, but mainly, really, it's it's a novel of middle age um, and life crisis. And I guess my goal was to sort of pass the time of life that I find myself in um, and to draw on some of the emotional experiences I've had at my own reunions um, and then use that to think about what it means to live well once one approaches middle life and the way that reunions make you question everything that you, all the choices that you've made um, up to that point. Mm, I'm interested in exploring some of those themes a bit further, but I just want to give listeners some context. Now, you're originally from South Africa, but you live in Sydney, and you actually went to Harvard, didn't you? I did, yeah. So I grew up between South Africa and Australia um, and went ended up at high school here in Sydney and then ended up going to um, America and to Harvard on a full scholarship. My older sister figured out that you could apply and then get full financial aid as a as an international student. And so she went off there. We'd never even been to America before. And then my, the monkey do I followed her two years later. I was very lucky that she, you know, gave me that guidance. Um, and yeah, so I, I turned up there more as an Australian because I'd come from, you know, high school here mm. than as a South African. But while I was there, um, I ended up studying anthropology and spent a lot of time back in South Africa. And that's where I ended up writing my first novel. So I've got a bit of a mix up of um, identities. Now, did you go to a reunion at Harvard that really sparked this? Yeah, I did. So it's a, it's a uniquely American phenomenon. Um, And it's not one that, you know, Australian universities sort of follow to the same intense degree, But basically, when you leave college, every five years, you get invited back to have a reunion celebration. And it's not just one sort of drunken dinner. It's like a long weekend where you can take your family and you get to stay in the dormitories that you once, you know, slept in as an 18 year old. So the residences are all along the Charles River there. And so suddenly you're sleeping in these little narrow single beds and the rooms smell the same and you know, all the light is the same and the sounds are the same. So it really throws you back into this like nostalgic soup. Um, so I went back from my five-year reunion um, and that was a bit of a different experience because everyone was still, I think, in that performative phase of life. And um, I had a great time, but it was interesting. There was a lot of sort of posturing still and ego mm. stuff 
Um, then my tenure didn't go cause I'd moved back to Sydney and had a baby and that all felt very far away. And then two years ago in 2018, I did go back for my 15 year reunion. And it was particularly interesting because I had not been back to America since I'd left, um, I think about eight years before that. So it was that sense of, you know, seeing a place with fresh eyes and a place where I'd never really been an insider anyway as a foreign student. Um, and going back to this place that had, that held, you know, all these feelings and memories and, um, and being thrown back in there. And it was also the first time that I'd been away from my family and my kids. So it was all quite overwhelming. And I had never intended to write a novel about this. Um, but while I was there over that weekend, I, I barely slept for one thing, partially from the jet lag, but partially, I think, because I was just so overstimulated. <laughs> I just realized, I just had all these fascinating sort of quite moving conversations with people I had once known well, um, you know, seen in our pajamas sitting around in the dining halls every day, and, mm -hmm. but then had seen in, you know, 15 years. And people were suddenly prepared to be quite honest and open about their lives and how far you have to fall, you know, when you've been told you were special because you got into Harvard and whether or not you believe that, um, you know, to go on to life after that. And then, you know, inevitably the failures and disappointments and letdowns of life, which, you know, it happens to everybody, um, but to see people processing that in a really open and honest way for the first mm -hmm. time. And so I, I got back from, from that reunion and then was horribly jet lagged on this side and couldn't sleep. And in this fog of insomnia, I, um, I realized, oh my gosh, I just have to start writing and create these characters. And all the characters were created completely from scratch. And so none of them is based on anyone that I knew. Um, there's the two characters that you never hear from who are sort of the dark and light poles of fame. So there's a famous son of an evil president whose mm. the job description is based on Jared Kushner, who was a classmate. And then there's a famous actress who comes, who arrived at Harvard at 18, already famous for her films. And that is based on Natalie Portman, who was a classmate. But other than that, that's the characters aren't based on them. And you never hear from those characters. But the main people who are speaking in the novel orbit around those characters and sort of have always measured themselves, I suppose, against them. Um, but, yeah, otherwise I just took the events of the reunion weekend and then um, had a lot of fun <laughs> putting my characters into all sorts of situations that, of, of course, didn't, you know, actually happen to me. So you get back to Sydney, you're jet lag, and you start writing because this is busting to come out and you've got so many ideas. What, how long did, did it just all pour out into a first draft or did you just have an initial rush and then it kind of formed into a novel over a much longer period of time? Well, this has never happened to me before. I've always heard other writers talk about you know, this fabled feeling of when a novel starts to write itself and the characters start to tell you what they want to do next. And um, this is my fourth work of fiction. And, you know, I truly had never felt that before until this book. Um, and honestly, I think the first, you know, messy, very rough draft took about seven months and it did just pour 
pour out. Um, wow. Yeah, it was weird because I I didn't know whether to trust that feeling because I hadn't had it before. Um, and I'm not saying it was easy. I mean, you would know, you know, um, it's when that's happening, it's still, you're still doing the work, right? You're still drawing on all those, you know, crafting skills and it's taking something from you, but it didn't feel anguished, I think, in a way that some of um, I've usually felt in the past when writing other fiction projects. It felt it felt fun some of the time. Um, All right, so the muse well and truly arrived. What I'm interested in is, I mean, were you planning to write a novel at that juncture of your life or or, or because this was no, busted to come out? You had no. to you had to give into it, you know. And and how did you then juggle it with the? You must have had other commitments at the time. I yep, I was not planning on writing a novel then. Um, I had I was really throwing myself. I I do a lot of freelance um, nonfiction writing to sort of you know try and pay the bills, and I was really throwing myself into that at the time. And I remember when it started to happen. I actually did take a bit of a risk financially and said no to a couple of um, jobs, like commissions, mm -hmm. because I just realised, oh, you know, if I don't, if I don't let this come now, then it's over. Um, and so, looking back, I'm glad that I, you know, did did do that at the time and just gave it that time um, to come out. But I then the insomnia then also um, did not go away. <laughs> <laughs> after the jet lag period. And so I remember that time as a very strange time, a sort of twilight time um, because I was not sleeping at all, which had never happened to me before for that kind of length of time. And in a weird way, it's the perfect condition in which to write a novel because, you you know, real life has become slightly unreal. Um, and, I I just remember feeling like I yeah I I was sort of floating through space and time. Mm. Um, it wasn't great to not sleep like that. But then someone told me that Barbara Kingsolver had written, I think it was the Poisonwood Bible, when mm. she had horrible pregnancy related insomnia, so she hadn't slept for something you know for the full nine months. And that book had come out of that. And um, while I would never put myself in the same category as Barbara. <laughs> But it did at the time make me feel a little bit better um, so that I just tried to stop worrying about the not sleeping and just, you know, go with it. And so the writing kind of also came out of that in-between state. So it's um, – do you think the – did the insomnia resolve itself after you finished the book and maybe it was just there for you to write the book? Well, in a way, yes. I mean, it was also linked to thyroid issue that I had and I think the medication was off um and that just took a while to get on top of but I do think there was another element of it was even though it was very fun to write this book I was also aware as it was coming out that it was a different writing voice to my previous fiction which had tended to be um sort of in the territory of fables and political allegories and very much concerned with sort of power abuse and complicity and, um, you know, quite serious, serious stuff. Um, and just the writing voice 
that I'd used previously was quite high literary for want of a better descriptor. Mm. Uh, whereas this one, I knew right from the beginning, it was, it was just more accessible. It was warmer. Um, it was funny at times. I mean, I, I hope it, the book comes across as funny and, Mm. um, you know, just very readable in a way that perhaps my previous stuff, I always felt a little bit like unintentionally I was keeping readers at arm's length. It never was the intention, but people seem to experience the work that way. Whereas this, Mm. it was just a different voice, but of course, as writers, we don't have any way to really signal that. And so I think part of the insomnia was also this dawning realization of I'm writing in this other voice that's recognizably different from an earlier voice. And how do I how do you know, how do I signal that? And do I even need to signal that? Or do I just mm-hmm. you know, let it let it out there? And so I think it was maybe linked to anxiety around that. Um so what's the answer to that? Do you, do you, do you feel that you need to signal it, or, and and if so, how did you? Yeah, well, I did initially think um, I did toy initially with publishing this novel under not a pseudonym uh, but a heteronym, and I'd always been interested. There's a Portuguese poet, Fernando Pessoa, who died in the 1930s, and he used to write poetry using about 12 different names, and he came up with that term. Um, of heteronym Mm. and those weren't different genres that he was writing in it wasn't like you know usually when writers use a pseudonym it's because particularly literary authors people who've been publishing literary stuff it's because they want to maybe try out writing in a different genre Mm. uh, you know like a kind of high low thing and they want to signal that shift that identity shift Um, whereas he he thought of the heteronyms as just each having different conditions of creation. So, and they would write letters to each other and they would actually write letters to editors of magazines where the, they had poems published and sort of sometimes they were nice about each other's poetry and sometimes they were kind of mean about it. And <laughs> I always found that so interesting. And as I've gotten a bit older and I've been, you know, working on this craft of writing and publishing in various voices, I thought, oh, well, maybe that's the solution. And so I did briefly go down that path, but I quickly realized that people um, don't like that. They seem to immediately assume I was trying to hide something. And I mean, the term pseudonym is a is a horrible term, really, right? Like a false name. It, it does imply deceit or, mm. you know, something shadowy is happening um, or that you're ashamed of of it or that so nobody could quite understand because I did submit it actually to some publishers under a heteronym and um, yeah it was just this horrible suspicious sort of like what is happening here and what is this person trying to hide and and that was not the point of it so I realized you know what there's no um there's no use in this. This isn't doing the right kind of signaling. And so then through a twist of fate, I had the opportunity to actually publish this novel first as an audiobook um, with Audible Originals. Mm-hmm. So a year ago it came out only as an audiobook. So it was what was called an audiobook first novel. And Audible Originals in Australia at the time was looking for novels that would um, exist in that form for a 12-month period. And 
for me, I mean, it's like a quite literal shifting of voice, right? It was it was the perfect way to signal a change in voice, um, to sort of jump into a parallel form. So it came out as an audiobook, and and then a year later, it's now a print book, which is what it was always written to be. I didn't write it to work as an audiobook, um, but it just came to life first in that form. Okay, so you this is your fourth work of fiction, and you, um, as you've mentioned, you do uh, journalism and you write for things like Good Weekend and The Monthly and New Yorker and stuff like that. Um, when take us back to when did you know you wanted to become a writer? Oh, I was actually looking at my old diary that I had written in on the plane on the way to go and study in America. So my first time in America and I'd written that I wanted to be a um, novelist, a um, environmentalist and a journalist. And I turn 40 tomorrow. Oh my gosh. Yes. Tomorrow. (laughs) No, two days time. Mm -hmm. And um, so I've just been doing a lot of thinking (laughs) and, um, you know, reevaluating, and I think I just, yeah, from a very young age, wanted to use language as my way of making sense of the world. But the tension was always that you know, writing fiction feels like a sort of turning inward, um, and then I had this other impulse to turn outward. That then I studied social anthropology, and so that idea of you know, gazing outwards and observing others. Um, and that tension, I suppose, probably goes back to my parents. My dad's very much, you know, um, focused on people's life stories and, um, you know, the inside truth of another human being. And my mum is very much, um, she was a literary critic and so the, was interested in, you know, the, the more internal forms of, of fiction. So I think I used to think, can you do both well? And I used to worry maybe that, I had missed some sort of signal that there was one choice that I should have made and that by trying to do both, I would, you know, just end up, you know, not really reaching my full potential in either form. But actually I have come to accept in the last few years that um, I contain multitudes and all these different voices and that actually I'm hoping if I can keep working on them, that they all have a place and, I can't really do one without the other. Like it's after I've written fiction, I feel a bit ill. Like I need to focus on other people and get out of my own brain for a while and um, do that kind of observational stuff and a bit more activism. And, you know, um, I write a lot about environmental sustainability and particularly now sustainability in outer space um, so that, outward gaze but then when I've done that for a while I tend to want to curl back up and flex inwards again so yeah I've come to see it as a practice that is 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 flexible and the one enables the other and so when you want to uh look inward again and and start going down the fiction path does that um Tell us what that looks like. Like when you, I mean, this one, this particular book, there was a very clear seed and a very clear point of inspiration. What do you imagine your next book, or maybe you've already started thinking about it, 
how does that, what does that gestation period look like? And typically how long does it take before you then start writing? You know, every single project has been entirely different right from the beginning, even in terms of, yeah, the gestation, the motivation, the seed, um, the way it feels, um, and then just the day-to-day you know, process of doing it. So I honestly don't know with every project, I don't know what it's going to ask of me. And I really love that. I really value that. I think it's why writing fiction can be so addictive because every time you're starting from a place of not knowing um, and every time you feel like you, you know, are, are starting from scratch and, um, it's drawing on and asking something of you that hasn't been asked before. And um, so I don't, I really don't know. Um, <laughs> one thing you know is that I, um, I am going to do a book of short stories again next um, and they will have some sort of engagement with the sustainability and outer space theme, which I've mainly been working on in a nonfiction capacity. But I feel like, again, I, sorry, my dog has just knocked something over here (laughs) (laughs) yeah I just feel like it's um I'm now at a point where the useful thinking I've done about this in nonfiction, I'm now ready to sort of push it a little bit further in a fictional form and the things that fiction lets you do um and the kind of critical thinking that can happen in that and that people are much more open to when it happens in a form that's um, imaginative rather than when they're just reading, you know, an article written in a traditional sort of essay or, or non-fiction style. So this book, um, let's talk about that seven months and about your writing process in that seven months. It sounds to me like it it really started with the characters and because they're so vivid and they're so well-drawn and they're so um, really reflect what, is going on in middle age um what in terms of the plot itself and how that unfolded did you let it unfold as you wrote it or again did you have that flash of inspiration at the start and kind of know where it was going um honestly because that period is so hazy to me now (laughs) I don't know I don't really know I think like if I look back at my notes, you're right, like the characters came first. So I, I know I worked on their backstories a bit mm-hmm. um, and I knew right from the start that I wanted the, the um, Fred Reese character, so the son of an evil US president, mm-hmm. um, to, to show up dead right near the beginning so that there'd be just a frisson of mystery around what happened, although it's not a murder mystery book. It's, that's not the focus of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there was a little bit of um, structural stuff around making sure I seeded enough clues throughout so that you would kind of know at the end um, who, who'd done it. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, I think the other thing that's weird about this book is that I um, – so when it started coming out, I also realised that I wanted to do this after each reunion going forwards. But the reunions, of course, are five years apart. Mm-hmm. So it's not exactly like a gripping sequel when, you know, five to six to maybe seven years have passed before you read it. I'm not expecting anybody to be, you know, waiting with bated breath. But the idea is a bit like um, 
I don't know if you ever watched the Seven Up documentary oh, yes. series, the Michael Apted ones, where he kept checking back in with a group of seven. Um, was it seven people? I can't, I can't remember, remember how, how many people. And through their lives, and I think they're now in their like seventies. And because yeah. um, my dad was an educational psychologist, so every time one of those came up, we'd all sit down and watch it. And um, and then the Harvard's Grant study on happiness that I mentioned in the novel is a real study. It's the longest running study on human happiness. Um, and that followed all men graduates because at the time Harvard was only open to men. But from, I think, around the 30s until now many of them have passed away or are in their 90s. And I love that idea too of checking back in with a cohort of people over time and, um, and so I don't know with COVID what's going to happen, but I guess the idea is that in each future reunion I would write a new novel with a new set of characters. So it wouldn't be the same characters as in this oh. one. But you have little glimpses peripherally of some of these characters and tie up a little bit, a few, you know, there's a few loose ends left at the end of the book and you would get some answers to those loose ends, but then you'd also be engaging with a whole new set of characters. So. And exploring a whole new range of themes of whatever is facing you at that point in life. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so yeah. that's, I don't know. I think that's great. That's great. Um I want to talk about the the freelance journalism that you do. I'm interested to know how you choose what you want to write about. I'm not talking, obviously, about the things that, you know, an editor comes to you and say, here's this idea, I think you'd be great for it, but the things that pique your interest. And I'll tell you the reason why. I read something you wrote for The Monthly on um, – and I can only assume you must live or at the time lived in the North Shore in Sydney because it was about the uh, decision by the government to close certain schools and reallocate funds to certain schools. And it was a long piece. But at the end of it, I was just blown away, not only by the writing, but the research and the the depth of the research and the the story that was told. Um so to to go in such depth in a, a, a magazine article as opposed to a book, which you understand you go into that level of depth, you must have been really interested in it on a personal level and I can only assume that that's how you make your choices with your other journalism. Is that the case and can you tell us a bit about that? <laughs> Oh, well, thank you for your kind words about that piece. Um, yeah, it, every single one of the essays is a passion project and mm -hmm. I'd say 99% of the time, yes, I'm pitching the ideas. It's not really happened the other way at all. Um, I am a terrible freelance writer in terms of the sense of it because I spend way too much time doing all the research and pouring <laughs> myself into it and, you know, I mean, the pay is not is not, you know, great anyway. And then uh, I just can spend way too long, but it seems to just be my process. And, um, I try and think of that as that's where I think it's helped to think of it as, um, not activism, but as, 
a kind of contribution that I can make in in certain you know in certain spheres that I do care passionately about. So that one was because I care passionately about public education in Australia, having been a beneficiary of it my whole life. I started school in Melbourne in primary school and then finished um, at high school here at North Sydney Girls. And um, I'm often amazed at how people who are born and bred in Australia and sort of you know take a lot of that stuff for granted, um, don't fight for, you know, public services in that same way. Um, And I'm often shocked at how many people are just assuming that, you know, the local public high school is not worth sending the kids to, but then they're also not investing their own time, you know, into building that community and, and then the political stuff around the funding the private schools get and the way that it's always been political, how um, students have been channeled into um, private schools and then the public schools have been left to get overcrowded. Um, so, yeah, it, that's that's something I care about deeply. And then, yeah, same, I guess, with the space stuff. Um, mm-hmm. I just... I just really care about it and I I tend to also pick things where I feel like no one's really paying attention Um, and Mm -hmm. so that's the contribution I can make is just, you know, I think it's Shirley Hazard who says that it's, you know, paying attention is a moral act and I think that's probably what I'm guided by in those essays is, you know, pouring the force of my passion and time into something that no one else is really um, looking at critically. So, with so this stuff that's at the moment for me, it's the the small satellite constellations that SpaceX and Amazon and OneWeb are starting to launch by the thousands into low Earth orbit, and um, you know their goal is to create a mesh of these satellite satellites around our Earth, um, and people just don't seem to know, and if they do know, they just don't seem to care. So that's the trigger for me. So I'm in the middle of embarking on a massive um, uh, long-form piece on on that and um, spending all my time on the research for that. Yeah, so on that point, though, let's get practical because, you know, I'm assuming your writing pays the bills <laughs> and, um, it, well, you've, you've said that it does. And um, you, I can tell that the, I mean, it's interesting that you say that you really spend way too much time on it and, hey, we're the, the as readers, we're the beneficiaries of that and, you know, thank you. <laughs> uh, but um, it's obvious when you read your work that the depth of research is beyond 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 which is wonderful but as you know practically speaking um how does that work for you in terms of you determining where to spend your time because you do have to you know there's a payoff right there's a payoff a certain amount how do you make that selection of oh I need to do this for the money and I need to or I need to do this for you know what I mean (laughs) I mean it's the eternal question isn't it and um I don't really have that sorted yet. I feel sometimes <laughs> I'm just lurching from thing to thing and, um, you know, trying to be a bit more savvy about that stuff and then failing at it. And um, But, yeah, I've also, you know, in these years been mothering young, very young children um, and so the flexibility of that has 
actually been really great. Um, and it's meant that I, you know, can kind of do some of that work while I'm also, you know, while a child is napping or um, in the evenings on weekends, then, you know, my partner will take the kids. And so, yeah, it's because it's a passion project. Like I love working, I love writing. And so I will spend all my time on it or any spare time that I have. But I've also tried to learn in the last few years and actually the Audible experiment was really great in the sense that, you know, to um, to take some chances and to experiment a bit in terms of mm-hmm. the form that your work might take um, and to, to collaborate more. So actually I'm also in a very collaborative phase where I'm collaborating with a couple of different um, friends or creative people and we, you know, um, usually women and uh, in that way sort of supporting each other to be both, you know, um, to to be able to express ourselves but also to survive on what we're earning. Um, and then the hustle, you know, I think we don't talk enough about that as writers. Like I think often people assume that you just sit around and wait for inspiration or that you can be, you know, sort of precious about the conditions under which you work. Um, and yeah, to survive, I guess I'm not precious about how I work. Like I could work in any kind of condition and, um, never run out of ideas that I feel very grateful for. I actually, it's the opposite. I feel like I have too many ideas and can never get to them. Um, so yeah, it's not a very good answer to your question, but the hustling I've become, I've started to realize actually that's just as important a part of the job um, yeah. as the creation stuff. Do you do things that aren't a passion project for you? <laughs> because um, you refer to those things as a passion project and I kind of get the sense that everything you do you uh, is are passion projects, but maybe not. I don't know. Yeah, I, I guess um, that's a good question. I'm trying to think. I guess I shouldn't share publicly the the jobs that I'm not as excited (laughs) well you don't have to say what they are you can just say they exist you know yeah there's a few bread and butter things that um you know I say yes to reluctantly (laughs) so um you refer to because I remember when the um when the book came out on audible uh and it was audio book at the time only and you refer to that as a risk how did that risk pay off for you? What was the result of that experiment? Um, look, I don't really know. Um, it's still a bit ongoing. Um, it was a risk in that uh, publishers tend now to not want to take on a novel if the audio rights aren't attached to it, so uh, print publishers. Um, so many, uh, publishing companies actually have a rule across the board that they will not take on a book if the audio rights aren't attached. So, um, in that sense, uh, in the U S for example, I do not have a publisher for this book, even though it's all American characters and it's set in America and actually all of my previous works of fiction I've had have been published in the U S. So, um, Perhaps it's a failed experiment for that reason, but um, I kind of I knew that. That's what I mean about the risk. Um, yeah, no US publisher was prepared to take on the novel as a print book without those audio rights attached. But did you know that when you agreed to the Audible thing? 
Um, I knew it was a risk. Uh, yeah. I didn't know how firmly that would be applied. Um, and the US is is just such a different kettle of fish that, you know, um, I didn't really fully understand perhaps, you know, how that plays out. Sure. Um, but I can't say that I didn't know it was a possibility. Yeah. Yeah. Tell us about your when you're writing, so you're uh, as in, you know, like your first draft, like your seven months kind of thing, um, what does your day look like? Oh, um like what what hours do you write between and do you have any writing rituals and you know what what yeah what does your day look like because yeah, you know um, it's, people are often interested to know especially when you've got young kids and stuff how it all fits in well it's just i mean i really admire the people who like you know get up at four and write till seven and get you know <laughs> use the cream of their brain on their fictional work i've never done that i don't really have much of a routine um every day feels a little bit different and I guess the only consistent thing is that I just feel like I'm stealing time from from anything else and then usually it would be evenings or weekends where I would be kind of catching up on on the creative work um but yeah honestly I don't I don't <laughs> um, I don't really have a routine and I guess that that's partially yeah the nature of of family life and creative being smushed together um and the different roles that you know I'm playing every day that just feels like it changes all, all the time um but I guess one maybe this is helpful to people who are writing you know often we again are told you must stick at it every day and you know produce a number of words and that works for some people but I've never written like that Mm -hmm. Um, and I don't worry too much about, you know, the word count and um, or even just leaving a bit of fallow time in between projects like doing a bit on a project and then leaving it for a bit and and coming back to it. Um, So, yeah, uh, I don't really have anything consistent (laughs) to share there except perhaps also it's, you know, keeping the fiction feeling like you um, are getting away with something. And maybe that's where it's useful to have this other persona and the nonfiction work where once I have an external deadline, I'm pretty focused on that. Mm. So a fiction project kind of gets put to the side and then I just have to trust that I'll pick it up, you know, pick up the voice when I come back to it. Although as we talked about life after truth was a bit different. Mm. Um, but I, I appreciate that because when you get back to the fiction, it feels like you are getting away with something a bit naughty and <laughs> keeps it feeling like a, a guilty pleasure. Wow. And something like I once tried in my life to only write fiction. Um, I wasn't doing, I had no other sort of job um, and it was terrible. It was like the worst oh. six months of my life and I hated it and um, I think I did, I couldn't articulate at the time why but I think that's why because it just felt like work again. It felt like this chore and um, so, yeah, anything you can do to trick yourself, I think, into making it feel, you know, like something you shouldn't be doing, then that's what you should do. Great. Um, all right, so fantastic. Let's end with what are your Top three tips for aspiring writers who hope to have their 
novel published one day? I think one thing I've been thinking about a lot is how special the debut writing experience is. Like when you're working on your first novel, when you haven't been published before, um, it's such a special experience because you are truly kind of writing just for yourself. You know, even though you might in your hopes want other people to read it one day, there's no guarantee of that. And so you in conversation with yourself in a way, you're figuring stuff out on the page um, and you never get to do that again because, you know, if you are then fortunate enough to, to be published, um, you are always a little bit aware that this private, intimate, you know, conversation you're having with yourself will one day become a public document and that's confronting. And I think that that's the part I'd say that never gets any easier is that strange shift that you make from, you know, basically hiding away alone, like processing the contents of your brain for several years. And then suddenly it becomes a public document that other people are engaging with. And while that's wonderful on the one hand, it's also really, it's really scary on the other. So I think that first experiences and just relishing that, that sense of being in conversation with yourself. Um, and I think that's probably why the second novel is so hard. Uh, mm. So my next piece of advice would be around the second novel or work of fiction. Um, it is hard, I think, because of that shift that you've made. And um, so, again, it's about maybe finding some way of tricking yourself back into writing just for yourself and getting back into that private conversation. And I think for everyone that would be quite different. Um, for me, I had an eight-year gap between the first book and the second, and in that period I had about three different failed novels that just went straight under the bed. Mm. But that was a useful process because by the time I, the eight years had passed, I actually um, – I had to find my way back to just that personal private joy in the use of language on the page again. Mm. And that's kind of what helped me find my way back. Um, and then I guess the third piece of advice, perhaps also something that we don't always acknowledge is that the drafting process, so that messy, hot, creative, spew it out on the page process is so different to the crafting process, which is that cool, you know, critical shaping and um, modelling process of the editing. Mm -hmm. So the creation part and the editing part, it's amazing that we expect any one person to have both those abilities or those sensibilities because um, that is usually, again, a point where I struggle quite a lot. So I'm fine at turning off the critical faculty for that, you know, messy creative part and the fire of that. But then the moment I have to turn my, you know, critical eye onto this piece of work and basically pull it to pieces in order to give it that shape. And that is what makes it art, I do believe. I think it's in that part of the process that that's, that magic happens. Um but it can be really hard to change gears like that. And the danger, of course, is that you go too far in that um, critical sense and um, and gut the, gut the heart and soul of the thing that you've just created. Mm-hmm. So I think it's useful to have someone guide you once you get to that point. I always say to people, don't share it, what you're working on until you're ready to edit and you're ready to change gears completely. And at that point, you know, when you have a messy 
messy hot mess of a first draft, then you might want to seek, you know, external help to make that transition into that critical period without just deciding to check out the whole thing. Mm. Wonderful. And on that note, congratulations on Life After Truth and thank you so much for your time today, Keridwin. Thanks, Valerie. Thanks for joining me this week and I hope you enjoyed this episode of So You Want to Be a Writer. If you want to connect with other listeners, just search on Facebook for So You Want to Be a Writer podcast community uh, and request to join. We'd love to have you in there. It's a really supportive community of emerging writers, established authors, freelance writers, um, the lot. And it's, I love hanging out in there. I'll be back again later this week with a very special Story Sessions episode, The Book of Two Ways by Jodie Pico. In our Story Sessions episode, you'll get to hear the opening chapter of a novel, either read by me or the author or someone else, and it's the perfect way to taste test or sound test, I guess, a novel. You can find it wherever you download this podcast. And, of course, you can find me online at ValerieCrew.com, on Twitter and Instagram, and um, make sure you check out what we have over at the Australian Writer Centre on writercentre.com.au. Thanks for listening, everyone, and we look forward to chatting to you again next time. Thanks for listening to So You Want to Be a Writer. You'll find the show notes at writercentre.com.au slash podcast or sign up for our awesome and often hilarious weekly newsletter at writerscentre.com.au slash news where you'll find writing resources, giveaways, competitions and much more.